Hi, welcome to Head Start, the podcast for race directors and the business of putting on races. Here's an easy one for you. What do the Marine Corps Marathon, Air Force Marathon and Army 10-Miler all have in common? Well, they are of course amazing races put on to celebrate branches of the US military that attract tens of thousands of participants every year. Well, there's a new race in town for 2022 set to celebrate the youngest of all military branches, the Space Force. The aptly named Space Force T-10 Miler is set to take place this December 10th at historic Cape Canaveral and we're going to be hearing all about it from the event's own race director, Brandon Huff, in today's Star Spangled bonus episode. So get ready for some military race history, rockets, alligators, more rockets, and some very interesting insights into working as a race director within the US government. Now, before we get into this amazing bonus episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our hugely supportive podcast sponsors, Run Sign Up and Race Check. You, of course, know RunSignUp as the market-leading, all-in-one technology and registration solution used by over 26,000 races as we speak. That's right. You wonder what 26,000 races find so good about RunSignUp? Well, go find out for yourself at RunSignUp.com. That's RunSignUp.com. Now, you may be a bit less familiar with our other good friends, RaceCheck. That's a shame because RaceCheck's review box, which you can download for free at organizers.racecheck.com, can help you showcase your race reviews on your website, giving you instant social proof and a 20% boost on online registrations. So why not download your free RaceCheck review box today by visiting organizers.racecheck.com. That's organizers with an S.racecheck.com. Okay, ready for liftoff. In five, four, three, two, one, over to Brandon. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks a lot for taking the time, by the way. Um, You're a very, very busy man between um, all these marathons you're putting on for the government. Plus, you have a baby on the way, which is going to make you a whole lot busier. So... It's a great opportunity to have you on before uh, that very fortunate occasion. Uh, I really appreciate your time. So, do we have an amazing topic to talk about today? So, we're going to be talking about the inaugural Space Force T-10 Miler, which is a brand new race that will um, hopefully put uh, Space Force on the on the racing map. And you're going to tell us all about that. Before we go into all that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, your military career, your running career, how the two sort of like came together? Thank you so much for that intro. I'll try to keep it brief. I grew up running. I, I love running. I, I went to the U.S. Air Force Academy. And while there, I ran on our marathon team. So I did my first marathon when I was 17 years old, the United States Marine Corps Marathon. Um, I continued to run at the Air Force Academy, graduated, got uh, assigned to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, served a few years here as a contracting officer and then decided to earn a master's in sports administration. And uh, through that program at Xavier University, I met Iris Simpson Bush over at the Flying Pig Marathon and Darris Blackford at the Columbus Marathon, Rob Aguiar, the former director of the Air Force Marathon, and that kind of spurred my love of uh, directing events. And I was able to separate from the Air Force and got a job working out West 
in uh, 2014 with Mike Bone at Spectrum Sports, um, who managed a lot of events out in Southern California. One of our big clients was around Disney, uh, a lot of races on Catalina Island. So for them, I did a lot of the event operations, and I did that for a few years. And then I moved back to Ohio in 2017 to be uh, with my then fiance and now wife, who, as you mentioned, is having a baby this week, hopefully. And then uh, in 2018, I got hired by the Air Force Marathon in May of 2018 when Rob retired. So I have been here for just shy of four years now. Awesome. Race director to the Air Force Marathon. We're going to get into that. It's super exciting. You're also a pretty accomplished runner. I keep following you on, on Facebook and I see you running some pretty crazy times, crazy by my standards. Yeah, I mean, speed is a really relative term, as I tell a lot of people. So uh, a lot of people think I'm quite quick, uh, but my marathon personal record is 233. I actually ran that during the pandemic when all the races were canceled. I uh, I put on a little private marathon for some friends, a two-mile loop course that I certified myself. Um, and we had a timer come out, and we did 13 loops plus a little dog leg at the start to get that extra two tenths on the windiest day in 2020. And I took eighth place out of 16 with a 233 that day. Um, so yeah, I've been running my whole life. I consider myself a competitive hobby jogger. Uh, I think it's always helped me as an event director because I can understand our participants really well. I know their training, the, the, the struggles, the highs and lows. I know what they like um, because I like those same things myself. So yeah, still running, still getting after it. I'll be at uh, New York City this fall for the third time. I can't resist that race. It's a good one. Awesome. Good luck with that. So I've always wondered, by the way, you said you've been running all your life and then you went into um, into the military. Do people generally in the armed forces, do they, do they tend to be runners? Do they tend to run more than your average person or less than your average person? I'd say probably more than the average person, if only by the fact that they have to, because there's a physical fitness test once or twice a year, depending on how you score. Um, but definitely, at least like on the officer side of things too, running is definitely one of those sports you just see a lot more. Uh, people are just always like kind of running on lunch breaks and, uh, yeah, it's just kind of a way of life. Uh, most bases have multiple tracks. Like here at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, I can think of three tracks on the base. Plus, we have a one-mile rubber path. Um, so it's just kind of everywhere you look, there's an opportunity to go for a run. And a lot of people are doing it. And so uh, a lot of people in the military definitely run. That's great. That's great. Because you guys are built, uh, I mean, most military people, I guess, are also built quite heavily for for muscle and stuff. So it's not it's not necessarily, you know, like... The, the physique you associate with a runner, but it's it's great to see people go out, even if it's like for a 5K or something. And as you say, they need to keep fit, part of the job. Okay, speaking of which, I want to I wanna start us off with um, a quick history of armed forces races in general. So, you know, I have to say that for people outside of the US, and I consider myself um, one of those, this whole idea, you know, the races you guys have, the Marine Corps Marathon, the Air Force Marathon, all of those great races, which look amazing. And they've reached a point of, you know, like being really innovative and some, some great events. It's a little bit alien, I guess, to someone outside of the yes, to be having races run and operated and branded after uh, the armed forces and, and different sections of the armed forces. So what's the story behind that? How did the whole thing start? And how has it evolved to now, you know, having these huge, really accomplished races that are backed by the Marine Corps and the Navy and the Air Force and, and all of the other uh, branches of, um, of the military? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I want to apologize in advance to uh, my peers at Army 10 Miler and Marine Corps. I don't uh, I don't pretend to speak for them and their histories. Uh, they know them better than I do. So uh, to Angela, Rick and Matt, uh, I apologize if I get these things wrong. But as my understanding goes, somewhere in the 1970s, I want to say, someone came up with the idea to have a Marine Corps marathon around the nation's capital somewhere, um, and the idea kind of took. And I have like a brief chronology of it, but as an organization, they kind of get passed around a lot because like no one really knows what to do with them. What do you do with a, a marathon in the U.S. Marine Corps? But really quickly, it kind of sticks. People like it. It kind of grows. Um, over the decades, the Marine Corps has uh, earned the name, you know, the People's Marathon. Uh, so it's a wonderful foot tour of Washington, D.C., 26 miles of just beautiful history. It was my first marathon. And uh, a few years after their success, the Army came along and uh, created the Army 10-miler, which has been around some 30-plus years now. So then you get to the point where in the 1990s, someone at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, uh, it was actually a captain and a major, they were a couple in the medical squadron, said we should have a, uh, a marathon to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Air Force, which was founded in 1947. So for the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Air Force, they had the inaugural Air Force Marathon. And I think at that point, they called it like the Air Force Marathon. Um, but I don't know if the big Air Force had like blessed it. Um, and that didn't occur for about six or seven more years in the early 2000s. It kind of got the, uh, the, the blessing from the Pentagon saying, yes, this is the de facto Air Force Marathon. And so at that point, you had, you know, Air Force, Marine Corps and Army races. Um, the Navy hasn't had like their own. They've kind of had a few iterations of things, but they haven't had like their marquee event. Um, would like to see that someday. So that's kind of like the brief history. And then, you know, Marine Corps has grown and they have a, a massive umbrella of events, like 17 events now. The Air Force Marathon is not just a marathon anymore. We've got multiple events going now. And these are all races the general public can enter, right? It, it's not like you need to be like an Air Force veteran to run the Air Force Marathon or anything like that. Anyone can can sign up and, and run those races. That's correct. And uh, what's unique about actually the Air Force one compared to Marine Corps and Army, Marine Corps and Army, the Mar uh, Marine Corps Marathon Army 10-miler are both kind of run in the nation's capital in public areas, whereas the Air Force Marathon is kind of run not exclusively, but I'd say about 20 of the 26 miles are run through an active duty military installation. And so in that case, it's quite unique. You know, the, the gates are open to the installation for people to pass through on foot. Um, but all of our races are open to the public. And so it doesn't matter where you're from. You don't even have to just be from the U.S. A lot of our races uh, have international guests. We tend to have, you know, 10 plus countries or so represented at Air Force Marathon. And I imagine Marine Corps Marathon has dozens of countries represented at their event. And so, yeah, definitely open to the public. Right. And I guess it's a, it's a great opportunity for aspiring spies to uh, find a good way to get into a into an Air Force installation, right? Yeah, you would think. Um, what we actually do, though, a lot of people ask, like, how does that work? Do we, like, scrub our list and check everything? And the answer is yes. Um, so if people register for our event, we ultimately will cough up all the names and of the registrants to um, the security forces and the special investigations team. And they do what they do, and they tell us who's allowed and who's not allowed. So that's above my pay grade. I just cough up the uh, the names and they do the rest. Okay, okay, great. So one of the things that emerged from a chat we were having the other day that I think is absolutely fascinating, the legal status 
of the organization behind those races. You want to talk us through in as plain language as you can, because I know it's full of acronyms and, you know, like little terms and stuff on how exactly you guys operate these races, say the Air Force Marathon that you know quite well under the government and military umbrella? Yeah, it's it seems complicated, but it's really not. And so whether it's the Marine Corps Marathon or Army 10 Mile or Air Force Marathon, we all are kind of like small businesses that exist within a, a branch of the Department of Defense. And so how I explain it to people is like most things in the government are funded by taxpayer dollars and taxpayer dollars are also known as appropriated funds because Congress appropriates those funds to units. Um, so the Marine Corps Marathon, Army 10 Miler, Air Force Marathon, we do not get our money appropriated to us from Congress. So we thus have non-appropriated funds, meaning we make our own money. So our sponsorships and our registrations drive how we exist and survive as an entity. We have to make our own money to pay our bills and to pay for the supplies of the runners. So I always say, don't worry, you know, your taxpayer dollars aren't being wasted here at the uh, Air Force Marathon. So because we're non-appropriated funds, we're technically called a NAFI, a non-appropriated funds instrumentality, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying we make our own money and we don't exist to make money, but we don't exist to lose it. We're kind of like a break-even activity because ultimately, you know, we're just a, a good form of public relations for the, the military. Right. And the other interesting thing about all these uh, all these races is that I would have thought, actually, I, I, I did think that before we, uh, before we caught up on this, that Lots of these races would, you know, benefit some kind of military cause, maybe, uh, you know, like a veteran association or something. Because I know plenty of other races in the U.S. who do that, right? Who who, who go to support these kinds of uh, nonprofits. And you know, I would have thought that maybe the Marine Corps Marathon would benefit Mar uh, Marine Corps veterans, etc. But apparently, that's not the case, is it? Yeah. Um, so the U.S. government in general cannot like partner, if you will. We can't directly endorse charities. We can't directly financially support charities. Um, because I tell people, if you know, if you think about it like this, if the US government was taking tax dollars and just making a donation to some random charity, people would be like, why that charity over this one? You know, it's a it's a preferential treatment situation. And so therefore it's kind of just like a blanket ban. There's no endorsing of charities, no directly supporting charities. And so that kind of trickles all the way down to us, uh, the Marine Corps, Army 10, uh, Air Force, we cannot take our money and directly give it to charities. But as I was mentioning earlier, you know, as like a non-appropriated funds uh, entity, what that kind of means is there's a a guidance that we follow. It's uh, we all kind of are described as morale, welfare, and recreation activities, MWR activities, and so especially like the Army Ten Miler, they make it quite clear they're structured such that it says on their website, you know, all race proceeds benefit the soldier MWR programs. So again, MWR is morale, welfare, recreation. So they actually take a lot of their money and it gets put back into programs that benefit like the actual soldiers like on that installation and whatnot. Um, and so I can't speak for Marine Corps. Um, and then for us at Air Force, we are our own little activity. And so our money, if we do happen to make money, it has to stay with us. Um, but then we use it by putting it back into the event so that we can get better things for the event, that we can make the event better. And every now and then we try to work on things that 
benefit the installation but have an indirect tie back to the marathon like improving the the running track that's something like we could use our money for okay so most race directors listening into this i know plenty you know sometimes have um, issues with uh, getting permits for races and you know other other kinds of bureaucracy obstacles they hit tell us a little bit about uh, what happens when you guys need to um, order medals for the air force marathon or something like give us a little bit of insight into how easy it is to be doing these things under the government patronage for a race like this yeah so i think every race director has their own share of problems and would trade those problems for somebody else's problems so they think i think her name uh barbara up there at detroit marathon like she has to run into canada from detroit and back i would never want to deal with that problem um but there's a lot of people who would like some of the things we've got going for us at air force but would not like some of the other things like i can drop aid stations two weeks in advance because no one's going to touch them because they're sitting on a military installation But then a lot of people would not want how we have to acquire our supplies. So for most of uh, our peers listening here today, you know, if they want some medals, they can call up Maxwell, Ashworth, uh, always advancing, Stride Awards, you name it, and just place an order, give them the credit card, and that's done. But we have thresholds that dictate how we have to purchase. So pretty much any supply under $5,000, I have a lot of authority. Um, I actually don't have a credit card here at the marathon. Um, my employees do. So I actually can't buy anything. Um, but under $5,000, we can buy pretty much what we want. But from $5,000 to $25,000, the rules start to really pick up. We need multiple quotes and we can't write the, the award or order. We have to send it to an office who does it for us. We provide them the quotes and the statement of work and they go do the order for us. Above $25,000, it gets a lot more complicated. It has to go to the base contracting office. And so say we want shirts and we need a lot of them. We'll write a statement of work. We send it to the contracting office. They will solicit it to the general public and they'll get multiple bids back. They then redact all the information out of those bids so that we cannot see who bid. And they'll send us the bids and say, are these bids acceptable? I'll rule out the ones that aren't and say yes to the ones that are good and then send it back to them. And then they know who put in those bids. They'll choose the bidder with the lowest price and they'll come back to me and say, congrats, this is the vendor for your shirts or this is the vendor for your medals. And that process from when we draft the statement of work to when the uh, order is awarded can take three to four months. And then you actually have to once that order is awarded, then you got to wait for the items to be made and shipped. So it's about a six-month lead time, um, and it's very slow and bureaucratic. Um, it can be frustrating, but it, it does have its merits. It, it has some good merits, speaking from someone who was formerly a contracting officer in the Air Force when I was active duty. So you do you go through all this every year? So even if you pick a vendor on your first year, you need to go through over all over that again the year after and the year after? Yes and no. Um, So we can do what we call option year contracts. If it's a service like, say, um, porta-potties or light towers, we can do a five-year option contract. So after the base year, you can just renew the option for the next year, and you you just keep renewing the options. And it's, it's a unilateral action, meaning the the military gets to decide whether it wants to extend the option. The contractor has no say in it. So as long as we 
agree and like the service provided. We just keep renewing. And we've never been able to do this for commodity style contracts like medals and shirts, but we actually just kind of did one for the first time. It's called a BPA, a base purchase agreement, where we went out to the general public and said, we need uh, pricing on long sleeve shirts, short sleeve shirts, jackets, hoodies, beanies, like one big contract. And they had to price everything out. And and then it's a five-year option contract. And so we're not required to buy anything in it, or there's no like limit essentially, but we can buy if we want. So while why we set that up is now, you know, we decide, hey, we want to do beanies this year. I've already got pricing in a contract that has beanies on it. And I can just write an order against that contract and writing a, a purchase order off of BPA is a very fast process. And then at the end of the year, if we liked that contract, we just renew it. So we just did that for the first time after 25 years. And so now I have a five-year contract with about 30 items on it that I can quickly tap into. Um, it's It's got pros and cons because you're kind of locked into that contract. You can't just say, well, I, I kind of don't like the vendor that much, so I want to cancel. The government doesn't really like that. Like Unless you have a very legitimate reason to not renew the contract, they're going to keep renewing it. So it kind of like locks you in. But it provides stability and consistency going forward, which is nice. And it's a it's a way of establishing a relationship, which is can be hard to do when you're only doing one year contracts. Um, but the downside is when that five year contract ends, it's open for bid again to the general public. Anybody can jump back in. Your relationship is um, there's no when the contracting officer is choosing an award winner, uh, your relationship with a vendor doesn't really factor in. So it's not a, a variable they consider. It sounds like like there's some downside in all this for the vendors, right? I mean, to to basically be there on 30 items, give out a price for five years or whatever, right? Even like for, for a full third, particularly with what's been happening lately with inflation, with disruption, with all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's a tough deal, I guess, right? Yeah, it definitely is. And uh, we try to be sensitive to that one. They kind of price in that uncertainty. Uh, I was actually talking to a vendor recently who was applying for one of these or bidding on one of these contracts for um, another entity, not to be named, but I was trying to like help them understand how it works. And I was like, yeah, you just kind of have to price in a bit of that uncertainty. Um, but there are some things, you know, kind of like act of God things that can be rectified on the back end. Um, we actually had to deal with that. Like we wrote the contract and then like the pandemic began and we needed to airship things and the contract did not account for air shipping. And so both parties were able to do a bilateral modification to the contract to factor that in. Because at the end of the day, we're not here to take advantage of a contractor and put a contractor in a bad spot. Um, that's, that doesn't work for them. It doesn't work for the U S government either. Um, we just got to make sure we follow all applicable laws and do it right. Uh, even though this isn't taxpayer funded money, we still have to follow the laws of the U S government. And so as long as we did it correctly, that's what matters. How do sponsorships work under this framework? Do you, do you just go out and find sponsors same way as other races might, or are there limitations there? Are there benefits in being in this government-supported or sponsored type of oversight? How do sponsors work? Yeah, I think, again, like you're going to hear me say a few times, there's pros and cons here. Cons, there's a lot more red tape. Uh, you know, in the general public, you can just go out, you have a beer with a sponsor, you hit it off, and you know you swap a few emails, and boom, you're done. You agree on it. And again, they're not that all, <laughs> all that simple. 
literally a handshake can seal the deal. Um, here, it's pretty formal. Uh, you know, there's got to be legal reviews, uh, Air Force legal, and I would assume Marine Corps Army legal is just as serious. You know, they they want to make sure the letter of the law is being followed. There, there are specific regulations on the types of sponsorships, what we can offer, what they can offer us, et cetera. You know, uh, the big thing for us is there can be no federal endorsement just because someone sponsors USAA, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, just because they're sponsoring the event does not mean the federal government is endorsing those businesses. And so you'll always notice typically wherever we put our sponsors, you'll see a little line beneath it, no federal endorsement intended. Um, So that's kind of like one of the nuances. But as a whole, you know, we have a sponsorship coordinator, just like a lot of you all do. Um, Sometimes they take cold calls themselves. Sometimes they're making cold calls. Um, So it's the same kind of process. Uh, we, We avoid obviously anything kind of like, you know, illicit that there there are some specific rules on what we're not allowed to, but generally it's pretty broad what we are allowed to. You notice probably when you're browsing ours and some of our peers, uh, you'll notice a lot more of the uh, sort of called the military industrial complex vendors. You'll see the Boeings, Northrop Grumman's, Lockheed Martins. Um, you'll see a lot of those, Navy Federal, USAA. So a lot of the more like common assets that are associated with the military in the United States. But then just like everyone else, you know, we and get some of the the ones that are sports specific, you know, your Gatorades and Aquafinas and stuff like that. And then your random ones, a lot of local ones. So uh, I think we got about 45 sponsors here at the U.S. Air Force Marathon that do a lot for us. Well, let's talk about a little bit about the Space Force itself. Can you give us a little bit of background? I think the U.S. is probably one of the first, if not the first uh, country to have like a formal branch of the Army that has sort of like responsibility over space defense and all that. Can you tell us a little bit about when the Space Force was set up and sort of what its remit has been so far? Yeah. uh, One, I, again, (laughs) I do not pretend to be a spokesperson for the United States Space Force. So if the chief of the uh, Space Force is out there, General Raymond, I sincerely apologize uh, because I don't think I'm the best to answer that. But It was stood up in late 2019 um, under President Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, a lot of people at the time were like, is this a joke? And it's like, no, it's a very serious thing. You know, it's it's the next frontier. And um, there's a lot of assets worth protecting out there. Um, I mean, just alone, think every day you and I jump in our cars, we use Google GPS systems. GPS systems are all over space, extremely important. Um, Someone's got to make sure those are staying safe. The military has a lot of satellites up there itself, um, satellites that do communications. Um, Boeing has been working on a space plane. You have U.S. missile warning systems up there. Look at what's going on right now, um, the conflict that we're seeing in Eastern Europe, and where are we getting those imagery, that imagery from uh, when, we're, when we see what's going on there. So there's a lot of serious assets that need protecting and need monitoring, and then simultaneously if you're paying attention in the US, how fast we're putting rockets into space is it's kind of incredible. Um, if you don't, uh, there's a cool uh, Space Force base, Patrick Space Force base known as Space Launch Delta 45. And if you follow their Facebook page, once or twice a week, they're shooting a rocket off Cape Canaveral into space. And I mean, some of those are government, some of those are NASA, some of those are um, private contractors like SpaceX. Uh, it's it's really incredible. And so you've got to make sure that it's safe and it's being done correctly. And I think that's where Space Force comes in. 
and creates that safe space. Like, <laughs> no pun intended there, uh, not, not the cultural reference, a literal safe space for military and uh, civilian assets to be in space. Yeah, and I know you mentioned the rockets. Uh, the rocket actually is part of the um, awesome uh, race medal for the Space Force that you guys have uh, released on the site for um, the in- the inaugural race. What other kind of assets does Space Force have beyond like rockets? And also, does it have any bases like Air Force and the Army do? Yeah, and so like when you talk about assets, there's a lot of like the the physical assets of the land. They they provide the installation like Cape Canaveral to do some of the launches. Um as I mentioned some of the uh, a lot of the satellite communication networks and constellations, uh US missile warning systems. Um there's a space surveillance network and a satellite control network. So those are like some of the physical assets, but there's definitely a list of uh, a lot of bases. A lot of them were former Air Force bases, and they're being like slowly converted. So for example, you have Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station, um, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, uh, Patrick Space Force Base, and then some of the other bases, I'm not sure if they've been fully converted yet, but they have a lot of Space Force assets like Buckley in Colorado and Peterson in Colorado, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Shriver, in Colorado, uh, Vandenberg in California. So it's a lot of California, Colorado, Florida, um, where there's a lot of assets that the Space Force has uh, a footprint. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned there, I mean, you you keep mentioning uh, the Air Force. And of course, you know, beyond, besides being the, uh, the, the race director for the Space Force race, you're, you know, you started off being the race director for the Air Force Marathon. Are the ties between the Air Force and the Space Force as close as people would assume? Yeah, definitely. Um, I I think it's a lot like, uh, I kind of liken it to the Navy and the Marine Corps. The Navy and Marine Corps here in the United States are actually really closely related. Um, They're kind of tied at the hip. And so they're they're separate, but they're very similar. And I think when they, they spun off the Space Force, you know, we talk so much uh, about taxpayer dollars, you want to be smart and not just waste taxpayer dollars. So it doesn't make sense to do have two versions of everything, you know? Um, and I think the answer is no. And so I think they wisely realized that and they set up a, a, a new force, the United States Space Force, but a lot of the services are shared between the two. And so, and I think they're going to be shared between the two for a long, long time. There's just not really a reason to create, um, you know, I'll give an example as we talk about morale, welfare, recreation, that kind of is generally encompassed by the word services in the United States Air Force. I think you'll see that services will be shared by the Space Force and the U.S. Air Force. There's no need to create an entirely new services department just for the Space Force when, uh, I'll use the word synergy here, there's just already good synergy. Why waste a bunch of money to prop up a second one. Um, so you're going to see a lot of shared services, but they, they are separate commands, um, but are separate departments, but definitely a bit of shared footprint there. Yeah. You, you keep mentioning that, uh, you know, Air Force and Space Force share a lot of surf, a, lo- a lot of services and have a pretty common footprint. And yet these guys decided uh, they don't want to share into the Air Force Marathon. They want to have a race of their own. So um, how did it all how did it all go down? Like, what? Tell us a little bit about like the story of how it all began. 
with the Space Force T minus 10 miler. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of glad they didn't just want to have our race. And it's kind of funny because we actually at the Air Force Marathon have what have we have historically called the MAGCOM challenge, which is the major command challenge. The US Air Force is divided into major commands. There's 10 of them. And one of those commands was Space Command. But when they turned into their own force, we didn't know what to do because they still wanted to participate in our challenge and we wanted them. So we actually, services told us we needed to change the name of our challenge. It couldn't be called the MAGCOM challenge if we wanted Space Force to participate. So we changed the name of our challenge to the Air and Space Challenge to allow the Space Force to compete. Um, so we were trying to, you know, make it work. And then I guess that wasn't enough for them. And they just wanted their own race uh, as well, which I'm totally excited about uh, for obvious reasons that we'll get into. Um, but how it started was back a, a little under a year ago, got a phone call to our office um, from some a lieutenant and a captain down at Patrick Space Force Base, and they were asking about how to do a race. And we get that question a bit, you know, um, I bet Marine Corps does too, and Army 10 Miler, other bases kind of want to have their own little race. And so we kind of explained to them how it works, but it was clear that Patrick Space Force Base was not interested in like a fun run. They wanted a race. They wanted a United States Space Force race. Um, they wanted an Air Force, a marathon, Marine Corps marathon, Army 10 miler, Space Force race. And so when we started talking to them about how you do it within the US government, um, and we briefly alluded to some of those things here, um, but when you actually look into how to start one from the ground up, it's a lot of work. It is, uh, it's quite a bureaucratic process. It's, there's no real blueprint or template to do it because it's done so rarely. Um, and so as we talked to them about it and what they wanted and about how complicated it might be, a couple uh, what we call COAs, courses of action were proposed. And one of those was that we, the United States Air Force Marathon, would be willing to help them with it. And they took that idea and the other ones back to their leadership and their leadership was amenable to that uh, option where we were involved. And so that's what we started working towards. We produced a memorandum of agreement between their installation and ours stating we would come in and we would manage this race for them. Uh, their installation would still need to provide, you know, the security forces for the event, the civil engineering for the event, their public affairs team would need to help, but that we would produce the, the physical event. Just like here at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, you know, we lean on our security forces, our civil engineering, our public affairs assets, et cetera, to help us. But day to day, we produce the Air Force Marathon. Kind of the same agreement we made there. We'll do the management side of things. You know, we'll take care of the ordering, the registration, the marketing, uh, designing the course and certifying the course, uh, making sure people have a good experience. But you just need to provide the background uh, support that we need. And they liked it. We liked that agreement. And that is kind of how it worked. So basically, the Air Force Marathon team is organizing the Space Force T-10 miler on behalf of the Space Force. That is absolutely correct. I liken it to people um, just like, you know, if you do Boston Marathon, like DMSE is behind the Boston Marathon and supports, or like uh, Track Shack is kind of behind Run Disney at times. Uh, we're just kind of behind the scenes producing it for them. Right. 
when and where is the uh, the inaugural race going to be taking place? So it is going to be December 10th this year, 2022, at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. That date was chosen. Uh, it's a week before their birthday. Uh, the birthday of the Space Force is really close to Christmas. I think it's December 19th off the top of my head. And so they didn't want to put it on that weekend because it's the week before Christmas. So we moved it one weekend up um, to give people a little more time between the holidays. So December 10th, 2022 on Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. Awesome. And you personally also directing the Air Force Marathon. Are you happy to see the Space Force uh, come out in favor of doing a 10 miler over like um, an entire marathon? Do you think it's a good distance for this race to start off on? I think it's a great distance. Uh, I was one of the early advocates as we began our discussions with them of a shorter distance versus a longer distance race. Um, I had actually originally proposed a 10K for them, uh, but they wanted to see a, a few specific sites on the installation, a couple specific launch pads and stuff they wanted to run by. And so as we looked at that, it 10 miler kind of made more sense. Um, I think 10 miler is a great distance. As you and I kind of chatted about the other day, uh, there's so many amazing races here in the United States that are not half marathons and full marathons. And I mean, I'm happy to give some of those a shout out right now, like Peachtree Road Race, uh, Boulder Boulder 10K, Carlsbad 5000, Boilermaker 15K, Beach to Beacon 10K, Falmouth Road Race, Lilac Blooms Day. Um, you know, there's just so many great races that aren't half marathons and marathons. And so I tried to push the leadership that way and say, this is a distance that is still long. It's still challenging, but still it's a lot logistically easier to pull off, especially on a place like the Cape, which already has some logistical hurdles. And most importantly, the distance is rather accessible to a larger portion of the populace than, say, a full marathon. Um, full marathons are very challenging, and only so many people can do them, whereas the 10-miler is a lot more accessible. And, you know, I think that's one of our big goals is how do we get more people out? How do we have more people experience this? And I think a 10-miler gets us there. Yeah, and speaking of um, race experience and Cape Canaveral, I think most people around the world would appreciate what um, Cape Canaveral stands for and, and how iconic a place it is to be um, putting on a race in. Does the actual course or parts of the 10 miles sort of like wind around the uh, the Cape Canaveral installation? How's the, how's the course laid out? Yeah, you make such a great point. I think Cape Canaveral as a place is not just important in American history and space history, it's important in human history. And so I think the course that was designed highlights that. And it is a point-to-point -point course um, that it runs by some really iconic places on the Cape. We haven't publicly released the course yet. We're probably going to be doing that really close to registration opening. But we made sure that it really touches some very incredible places in uh, space history. And one of the benefits that the course offers is just the wildlife. If you've never been on Cape Canaveral, Cape Canaveral is really close to the uh, Cape Canaveral National Seashore, which is a national park, and Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge. And so the island itself is pretty much a wildlife refuge. It's, it's teeming with just incredible birds and alligators swimming in the water. And there's ibises and ospreys. There's even one bird there completely endemic just to Florida. The Florida scrub jay, you'll just be running and you'll just see it kind of 
sitting on top of a branch 20 feet away from you because they're kind of curious birds. And uh, so if you're paying attention while you're running, you're running on a place that is just like, it's like a biological reserve. And so you're running through what feels almost like a zoo in some instances, simultaneously you're running through space history. So it's, I mean it when I say it, I've, I've run all over the country and the world. Um, I think it's one of the coolest courses I've ever run. I think the only course I could probably say gives it a, a, a tough go is New York City. Uh, shout out to Ted. That's just such a fun race and running through the Big Apple. But for different reasons, this course is amazing as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You have that combination, as you say, of like really high tech, all the the space, um, the space race history, and then on the other side, you have you know the wild birds and Floridian uh, wildlife and alligators and stuff like that. And actually, I wanted to um, tell people what you were telling me the other day about weighing up whether you would have a band playing around the course. And I think it's interesting for you to uh, share this. Race experience is something that people struggle with quite a lot. Uh, I frankly think it's the only reason why people go to races. They don't go for the time. They go for the, for the experience of actually running an amazing race with great people in a great context. And having more stuff sometimes, like bands playing and stuff like that, is not always better. So tell us a little bit about your decision and sort of like your thinking around incorporating music and other elements throughout the course? Yeah, um, I've been privileged so far to go down to Cape Canaveral twice and look at the installation and run the course. I, I first went back in December. Um, I went alone. And so <laughs> with a point-to-point course, uh, to run the course, I had to run from the, the finish to the start and then run the 10-mile course. Went on a 15 mile run and really, really loved the course and thought it was beautiful. And I came back in February with a coworker, uh, Matthew. Matthew was really integral in designing the course. I made a few tweaks to it, but he designed the bread and butter of it. And so he and I were running it together. And he's just like completely blown away by it. And I was like, I told you, it's going to be a great course. And so we're coming down this road. Uh, it's, it's named ICBM Road, of all names, um, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, for those who don't know. <laughs> so we're running down ICBM Road. And it's a rather long straightaway, like quite a long straightaway. And uh, he mentions like having a band. He's like, this might be a good spot for a band. I said, Matthew, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking that. And then, but as quick as I had the thought, I said, I don't think that's right though. You know, I was like, Matthew, listen, really just listen. And as we stood there, you could hear the water kind of crashing on the, from the ocean. It was hitting the shore of the beach. And, and then we look over and there was like a, a turkey vulture or no, sorry, a black vulture sitting on top of the light pole, just looking at us. And I was like, this place is wild. It really is wild. And I think if we're just like putting bands out here, we're, we're really taking something away from what this course offers. And so instead, I think our idea is just to put a lot of signs out along the route, like 100 to 150 signs along the 10 mile route that has historical facts and wildlife facts to try to make people be present when they're running this route. Um, so, yeah, there might be some quiet stretches, but that's okay. Like, that's you're running through a beautiful place that's preserved and it's filled with wildlife and it's spill, filled with history. There's a lot of races out there that have bands. Like that's, I don't think that's what we want to be. And I'm okay with that. Super. Beyond the amazing uh, wildlife and the rockets and all the great history, do you guys have anything else um, up your sleeves in terms of Space Forces stuff for the race? I think the goal is just to correctly honor 
the Space Force. You know, it's it's kind of hard to sit here and say like, oh, they're the history and heritage of the U.S. Space Force, you know, when they were just founded in 2019. But they actually do have a lot of history and heritage. It just wasn't called the U.S. Space Force at that time. There's a there's a very rich space history at Cape Canaveral. It is the gateway to space. Uh, and I mean, even the rocket we uh, selected to feature this year is the RTV G4 bumper rocket. That was chosen specifically because that's the first rocket that ever launched off Cape Canaveral. And so even the fact signs on the course, we've been working with, there's a historian at Cape Canaveral, and we've been working with him to make sure that we are correctly conveying information to people. Um, so the the shape of you know the metal is a tribute to something important. Uh, we're featuring Polaris, the North Star. It's so important uh, in space. So little things like that, that are all through the event. We do have uh, an astronaut who's going to be there. I won't name which one at this time. We're going to announce that later. I think it's, um, there's a lot of amazing astronauts. You're hard picked to find a bad one, but we found one that has, you know, a, a close relationship with the installation there and uh, it's going to be a natural fit. And it's exciting too, because it's not enough for them just to appear. They, they want to run. So that astronaut will show up, we'll be at the start line, we'll run the race um, with the participants, which I think is very exciting. Um, we'll try to do a flyover. We always like flyover and then you're like, well, what are you going to fly over? Are you going to fly over a rocket? And you're like, no, there's actually uh, Air Force assets that are involved in search and rescue if something were to go wrong. And so try to get some of those assets over the start line. Uh, make sure you know senior leadership is out there so that when people finish that they're they're getting their medal handed to them by senior officials of the United States Space Force. So wherever we can, we want to try to make sure we're tying in Space Force elements to uh, the event and to honor their uh, their history. Like I said, it, it seems on the surface to be a short history at only two plus years, but it's it's a much longer history when you really dig in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned earlier that um, I think you mentioned that the Air Force was. Um formed in 1947. I'm sure I remember uh, American airplanes before that. So, you know, it's not like exactly the date when when the actual thing goes down on paper and it's official. So where can people sign up? Can people sign up already for the race? Not yet. We're opening up on May 4th. Registration will be May 4th. For those of you who are smart enough to figure out the uh, that date, it is not a random date. We thought it would be pretty funny, and so did the leadership. Uh, there are uh, good spirits about that kind of stuff. Uh, so the, the website is runspaceforce.com, runspaceforce.com. We're on Facebook, too. Um, so it's going to open May 4th. Uh, the race is capped at 5,000 people. Um, we would like to grow it in time. Um, but it's kind of tough because Cape Canaveral is a, uh, it's closed to the general public day in and day out. It's even closed, you know, like if you're a retiree from the U S military, you can typically use your ID card to get onto a military installation. Even when you're retired, you cannot use your like retiree ID just to drive onto Cape Canaveral. It is like a secure installation. So to invite 5,000 people onto the installation on a point to point course is, um, going to come with a whole host of logistical issues that we need to navigate. And our hope is that we we do that well uh, in year one. And then once we kind of figure out what that template looks like, we grow the event and we get more people, uh, 6,000, 7,000, obviously in time, but eventually we'll hit a, a natural cap based on uh, what we can offer. But so yeah, we think it's going to sell out quick. 
when it opens up because it really is a unique opportunity to come run on the installation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure all of these elements you um, you mentioned earlier, I mean, they make for an amazing race. I'm sure it would be very soon that uh, this race will enter the pantheon of, you know, Marine Corps Marathon and Army 10 Miler and, and, and all of the other sort of like uh, races that have run for a, for a longer period of time. Then I also saw on the website this um, Sea, Air and Space Challenge. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, um, that was kind of a really organic thing that happened uh, about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago. I remember getting a Facebook ad for a Coast Guard marathon, uh, Coast Guard half marathon. And I I literally just messaged them on Facebook and I kind of asked, like, who are you? What are you? Like, how do I not know about you? Um, Because... You know, it's it's a small family of race directors, and the 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 military ones are a very small family. We tend to know one another. And a woman messaged me back, and she said, "Well, we're brand new. Uh, Corinna Rafo Phillips is her name." And we started chatting, and uh, from there, uh, I was like, "I want to do your race." <laughs> and so it was virtual in year one. They had to cancel, um, like many of us last year, and uh, so I did it virtually. And from there, when they announced, and by the way, I said her name wrong. Sorry, it's Corinna Phillips Riffo. I said it out of order. So um, that's the race director over there. They announced that for year two, it was going to be in person and they were going to add a full marathon. And it was in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, a few weeks ago. Wonderful event, highly recommended to uh, anyone listening. And so when we saw they were going to do a full marathon and there were the Coast Guard and we had just announced the Space Force race or we're about to announce it, we said, well, why don't we partner on a challenge? You know, there's a lot of runners who like stuff like this. And I know a lot of our peers listening sometimes are still a bit skeptical on challenges and, you know, virtual events. But I think the pandemic made it quite clear that there's an there's a big audience for that. And, you know, we've watched it kind of decline a little bit. Um, as the races physically have returned. Um, that was, I guess, everyone would have foreseen that coming, but the demand's still there. So we said, let's partner and make a challenge where runners do the Coast Guard event, the Air Force Marathon, and the Space Force T-minus 10 miler. And if they do it, we'll give them a challenge medal. And the thinking, you know, is it benefits us all. It, it won, it actually, most importantly, it gives the customers a product they want. They want this kind of challenge. And two, it, it benefits us all. You know, Coast Guard Marathon's new, very new. So how can we help them as the Air Force Marathon in a way that's, you know, legally sound? And how can we help ourselves? And how can we help the Space Force race? And this challenge was a natural evolution of that. Um, so we call it the Sea, Air, and Space Challenge, kind of the order they run in. So you do the Coast Guard Marathon or Half Marathon first. Then you can do Air Force Marathon, you can do our half marathon, whatever. And then you do the Space Force race. And knowing that it's a big ask to say, hey, in one calendar year, you need to go to Elizabeth City, North Carolina, Dayton, Ohio, and Cape Canaveral, Florida, which are not easy places to get to for the most part. To go to all those physically in one year is a huge ask. So you can do the challenge any which way you want. You can do it all virtually, one in person, two virtually, all three in person. It's dealer's choice. Um, and so we announced that only about a month and a half before the uh, Coast Guard race and had a few hundred sign up. So I'm really optimistic that 
after this year's event, when we when we drive interest in it for longer, it's going to grow a lot. And uh, I'm really excited about the future of it. And um, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention that I would like very much to try to get uh, our other sister services in on that challenge and find a way to create something where it's all five of us, because I think our audience really wants that. Yeah, I would have asked you about that, actually. I mean, it, in the US, I get the impression that you know, they have some strong emotions about the military and lots of people know veterans who've served. There's quite a fondness towards the armed forces. So it sounds like there might be an audience for a combined army, Marines, Navy, every every challenge, right? I mean, everything challenge. Just throw all of those amazing races into one and for the, uh, hopefully not not too few people who end up doing that, it would be an amazing challenge to have completed, to, you know, to be able to say that in a year they run um, all those races. If it's even possible, I don't even know like what the dates, how the dates line up, but if it is possible, it would be an amazing challenge. I think it is possible. It's a little stacked in the fall. You know, Coast Guard is now free floating out in March, and then you have Air Force in September. You have Army 10-miler early October, Marine Corps Marathon last week of October, and Space Force second weekend of December. So you're going to have a busy fall. But I think it's doable. Just like anything, though, as I mentioned with the government, it's kind of logistically complex. You know, we're all ones in the Army, ones in the Marine Corps, ones in the Air Force. So we all fall under our different branches. Um, it's not easy to make such agreement. And of course, as fate would have it, we quite literally all use different registration platforms. I think Run Sign Up, Race Roster, Haku, and Active are all like represented, uh, which does not make it easier. In an ideal world, we'd all be on the same platform to make the sharing of information easier. Um, so there's some like logistics there. And ultimately, you know, the other two, Marine Corps and uh, Army, would have to want to join too, and it has to be right for them. But I'm, I'm hopeful that since we kind of struck out first and uh, partner with Coast Guard, that we are maybe making the blueprint right now, the template as we speak, and kind of navigating some of the, the struggles and seeing what works and what doesn't. So then we can go to them in the future and say, hey, we've, we've already done this. It, and we've solved the problems for you. We just have made it very easy and hopefully make it to where they just say yes, because so, it would make no sense to say no. Uh, so that's kind of what we're working through right now. And Corinna over at Coast Guard has just been an incredible asset and so easy to work with. And so, uh, like I said, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of people who want to do it. And it's exciting that we haven't even opened up the Space Force registration. And there's already a few hundred people who are committed because they've signed up for this challenge. And so we know that we've already got, you know, 5% of our registrants sold out or sold right now. Uh, and that's that's exciting. And we, we think we can grow that in future years. We know we can grow that. Well, that's amazing. So before we go... Can you share with us any thoughts you may have about the future or the potential of this uh, new Space Force 10-miler that, that you're helping uh, you, you and the team bring to the world? How, how big do you think it might grow? How, how significant of a race is it going to be? And what's, what's your team's ambition around that? You know, that's a, a great question. It's so hard to know when you're just planning the first one right now. I think if you asked myself and the team planning it, what our ambitions are for the future, it's to produce a successful first year event. Um, that It's so hard to focus sometimes on the future of this event when we know just getting the first one off the ground is so hard. Um, 
because I've told the team, you know, so much of what we do this year, we might just end up blowing up right after year one and go, that did not work. We are not doing that again. Uh, We're really trying to keep it simple in year one and not overextend ourselves and make all these promises and write checks we can't really cash. Uh, We want to produce a quality event. And if that means a more simple event, that's okay. We just want to make sure that people's experience from the first touch point to the last is really good. And then say, how do we build upon this? And how do we make this a marquee event? And I, I don't like to get into like numbers, say, oh, uh, it, you know, if it was successful, it would have 10,000 or 15,000 um, because it, it's hard to know what that number could be. Boston Marathon is one of the most you know, iconic marathons in the world and only has what, 25,000 people because they're logistically capped. You can only fit so many people in a Hopkinton. So I think we're going to run into that someday. There's only so many places to park people on Cape Canaveral. Um, so I'm not too worried about the size of the event, whether it was five or 10,000 long-term. I think the goal is just to produce a race that truly honors the United States Space Force and is, you know, commiserate with the other DOD races such that people know not just locally, regionally and nationally, but even internationally, like this is a very fine, respectable event that people circle it on their calendar, that when May 4th rolls around, people are itching at their computer to register because they know it's going to be a sellout and hopefully maybe someday a lottery. I think that would be success is if we get to a lottery because my marketing person would love us. Uh, they wouldn't have to spend a year marketing. They could just focus on you know the branding aspects and stuff like that. Um, so it's really hard to know what the, the future holds because I think if you would have asked anyone in 1997 about the future of the Air Force Marathon, they would not have said, oh, in 25 years from now, they're going to be a staff of like nine people. They're going to have a Space Force race. They're going to have relays and challenges and virtual races and all this stuff. Um, they probably thought they were just doing something fun to honor the U.S. Air Force, and it kind of just grew into a life of its own. Same with the Marine Corps Marathon. So I don't know. I think the the potential is limitless, probably about as big as space with the potential. So we're going to have to wait and see after um, our successful year one. I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to be a successful year one. And the team planning, it's doing a wonderful job. Um, and then we'll see what the future holds. Absolutely. I'm sure you guys have an awesome uh, first year and I wholeheartedly wish you um, all the best with this race. I don't want to jinx it, but I think it's very, very difficult to not be able to produce an experience that is absolutely unique for people. The place is unique. The concept is unique. The gators are pretty unique, at least in, in a Space Force installation context. You have a great starting point to be able to deliver an amazing event. You personally, uh, Brandon, if you're willing to do that, if someone uh, takes an interest in uh, reaching out with regards to this event or, uh, or something else, can they, can they reach you on, um, on email somehow? Yeah, I'm super easy to reach uh, a couple ways. One, if you go through the Run Space Force website or even our Air Force Marathon website, which is usafmarathon.com, and you just do the contact us and mention my name, that email is always going to find me. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Brandon Huff. Huff is spelled like H-O-U-G-H, like tough. Uh, Super easy to find there. And my email address is Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N dot Huff, which is H-O-U-G-H dot the number three at us.af.mil. So 
super easy to reach. Happy to speak with anyone. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, my wife is going to be having a child any day soon. So I'm super stoked about that. And I'm going to be on leave for a few months, but still very easy to reach. I'll be browsing my emails from time to time. So feel free to reach out if I can do anything for you or if you just want to chat. Awesome. Brandon, thank you very, very much again for coming on. I really appreciate it. As you say, you have a little one on the way. I've had a couple. I know it gets uh, pretty hectic over the first few weeks. So I'm really great we could do this before the delivery. That, that makes things a lot easier for me and for you. And I want to wish you and the team uh, just an amazing run-up to your um, inaugural event. It's super exciting. Thanks again for uh, coming on. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks to everyone listening in, and we'll see you all on our next episode. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode on the Space Force T-10 miler with race director Brandon Huff. You can always check out more great content from the podcast by visiting racedirectorshq.com forward slash headstart. And you can get all new episodes of the podcast delivered straight to your phone, laptop, or other digital device by subscribing to the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Many, many thanks again to our awesome sponsors, Run Sign Up and Race Check. And until our next episode, come join us and more than 6,000 fellow race directors in our Race Directors Hub group on Facebook. Take care and keep putting on amazing races.